Welcome back to the Light Up Your Life podcast with your host, Samantha. And I'm Alexa. We're here to light up your life. Today, we have an extraordinary guest. His name is Albert Shaknazarova. Um, he's a seven-figure entrepreneur. He's a mentor. He's an author. He's a CEO and father and an investor. And he has a relentless determination to impact as many people as possible. So we are so happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on your show. I am excited. You know, one thing for sure, you two can, you know, light up the life. Uh, <laughs> there's no question about it. I know you just recently did a training for our entire uh, company. And Alexa, just talking to you for a few minutes, I can tell you have an amazing charisma and energy. And just having this conversation, I already feel better. So thank you for having me. Well, we appreciate so excited that. to have you here. I'll go ahead and kick us off. We would like to uh, dig into your incredible and very unique journey um, immigrating into the United States. So I know that in, in the past, you were born and raised in a refugee camp. Can you share what was that like for you? What are some of the challenges and some of the things that you needed to overcome to uh, be where you are today? Absolutely. Um, you know, just like my mentor, Joe Foster, founder of Reebok says, when you don't know better, you don't know better. Mm -hmm. And even though I grew up in a refugee camp, 350 square foot room, um, public bathrooms, public showers, we only had two twin beds. I didn't know that was bad. You know, I always had a smile on my face. Uh, we may not had filet mignon and, you know, cakes and desserts all over the place. We might not have a mansion or all that space that everybody desires. But one thing I had was love of my parents. You know, I, I saw how hard my dad worked. I saw how hard my mom supported him and the things that they were able to sacrifice. And even though it was such a small space, the amount of love that they gave us, we felt incredible. You know, when you have public showers, public bathrooms, um, you have to shower and you have to be watched. Is anybody coming in? Is anybody not coming in? It's just learning to adapt to certain situations. And when you're a kid, you, you're not aware enough to know that that's not how life's supposed to be. And the reason why I say, you know, I learned that from Joe Foster is because when he was a child, um, the World War II broke down. And he said, we played soccer, we played football. We enjoyed our meal. We, we, we didn't, even though the war was going on, it didn't feel like it was a war because we didn't think it was that bad. For me, living in a refugee camp, I have some of my great memories. I have some of my best memories in there because sharing an orange with my brother and knowing that's only one orange, I'll never forget that. You know, being able to every night sleep with my uh, mom and my dad and switch back and forth with Arthur, my brother, on who's sleeping with mom and who's sleeping with dad because there's only two twin beds and we have to share those. I'll never forget that. And I truly believe those moments, those uh, experiences made me who I am today to appreciate the life that I have today, the amount of ambition that I carry every single day to know that, you know, we came from the worst, but we didn't decide to stay there. Yeah, that's such an incredible story. And so how do you think that's changed your perspective on where you are now growing up in a really confined place in a refugee camp like that? You know. I believe a lot of people uh, take life for granted. I think a lot of people don't understand that there are people who face worse situation than they are. I mean, if you just pay attention to Facebook, you pay attention to Instagram, you talk to friends, family, they complain about the smallest things. Yeah. I can't believe it's raining. I can't believe, you know, the gas price went up or I can't believe they didn't have my favorite ice cream flavor. And, you know, we, we allow the tiniest, smallest things ruin our day. And it's because we're truly not grateful for the country that we live in, um, the freedom that we carry, and the opportunities that's all around us. You know, for me, being able to know that there's food and roof over my head, I knew that I was blessed. I was blessed. You know, when we first moved to the United States of America for one year, all we ate was pasta. Because one box of pasta can fit four people. And we would do ketchup, 
we'll do pasta with mayo, pasta with ranch, pasta with Alfredo, pasta with pesto. All you need is one box of pasta in different sauce and you're good to go. So to me, I believe the, the way he shaped me for my world today is that I started to really not complain. I started to really have a bigger picture in mind that there's people that are going through worse and it's not that big of a deal that I could just brush it off. Things may not go my way. I just need to adapt and I have to keep going. Wow. I absolutely love that. Yeah. I think so much of it is perspective, right? And so you having this really positive outlook, this positive um, mindset is, you know, what contributes to that. That's amazing. I love that. One of my favorite quotes is from Zinedine Zidane. He's a French football player. And he said, you know, I remember watching how I didn't have the best shoes to play soccer until one day I saw a man with no feet. Oh, and it, it, it's just such a different perspective, right? I mean, we always look for what we don't have rather than appreciate what we do have. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's definitely been a profound aspect in your life. And even your brother, Arthur, you guys are just filled with so much gratitude for what you have. And it's so beautiful to see. And you don't let the little mundane things get to you because you see that larger vision for yourself. And I think that's absolutely incredible. And I think that creates so much resilience. And so, you know, moving here to the United States, what did your life look like? Because you probably didn't speak the same language and going to school must've been really difficult. So if you can take us through that journey, that would be amazing. I don't know if you guys have tissues, but you might need it because, you know, you come to America and you say, where's my American dream? Well, I found my American nightmare. Okay. Um, I thought coming to this country, watching all the great movies with Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, Stallone, um, you know, Chuck Norris, you're like, okay, this is America. Things are great. Things are fantastic. And we're like, we're coming to Connecticut. And we never heard of that. There was even a state called Connecticut. Yeah. And we started to look in the map. We're like, okay, where's Connecticut? And we can't even find it. We had to get those magnifying glasses things to be able to look at Connecticut. And we're like, mm-hmm. okay, it's tiny state right between Boston, right between New York. All right. I mean, what is Connecticut known for? Well, the first thing Connecticut was known for is having a lot of trees. We're like, okay, cool. Okay, what else? Nothing else. Connecticut didn't have any sport teams, didn't have anything. So we're like, okay, we have no choice. If we stay where we are, we, we we're faced with racism. We're faced with, you know, abuse. We have to fight every single day to survive. So we're going to America. We're going to, you know, find our American dream. And we arrived in JFK, um, John F. Kennedy Airport, 3 o'clock in the morning, July 4th, on Independence Day. It's so ironic. And we, we were like, finally, we're free. We're in this country. We're, we're being bro- uh, brought to West Hartford on the shuttle. So we didn't get here till like 5.30 in the morning. We're exhausted. And the people that sponsored us was Catholic Church. They said, yeah, one month, we're going to pay all your bills. We're going to stop the fridge. We stop the pantry. Uh, but you're on your own. One month after that, you have to pay your own bills. If not, you guys are going to get kicked out. And by the way, your rent is not two-year term and not one-year term. It's month to month. So once you don't pay the rent, the guy can kick you out. So obviously, there's fear kicked in. That night, when that morning when we came in, even though we had three bedrooms, okay, we had a living room, we had two bedrooms, and because of what we were used to, we all slept in one bed in one bedroom because we just wanted to stay together. And that's what was our programming. The next morning, you know, after a couple hours when we woke up, we saw squirrels running around. There was a summer school bus pulled up. We're like, this is like a movie, you know, yellow bus. I had to walk two miles in my school. That didn't matter if it was winter, didn't matter, you know, it was summer. I had to walk to school two miles, one mile there, one mile back. So all the all those things were just, you know, unrealistic to us. We couldn't believe that we were in this country. But then the reality hit. How are we going to pay? How are we going to live here? We don't speak the language. We don't know anybody. And what we learned quickly is that Connecticut was, um, you know, highly populated by Hispanics. So therefore, the second best language that people spoke was Spanish. And we didn't speak Spanish. 
So my dad, same morning, said, okay, we're going to go around and we're going to start knocking on every business and I'm going to ask for work. So luckily, we knocked on a business after knocking on dozens of businesses. He knocked on a business that was called Europe Grocery Store. And the gentleman there spoke Russian. And we spoke Russian, even though we were Armenians. My dad struck the conversation. They negotiate something. The guy said, okay, come back. They were paying $5 an hour. And my dad was working 80 hours. Oh, my gosh. My older brother, Arthur, also got the job. So here I am, no guidance, no direction. The two people that I look up the most are no longer around because they have to exchange their hours for dollars. Mm -hmm. And what do I do? I had to go to high school. I had to go to school. And I hated going to school more than living in a refugee camp. Going to high school was my biggest nightmare. You know, I'm a guy. I just came. I'm culturally shocked. I don't know how to dress. I don't know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. I'm wearing Skechers. You know, I'm wearing sweatpants with a polo shirt. I'm confused. I'm lost. I'm in a classroom with other 40, 50 people. There's pretty girls sitting there. And the teacher knows that I don't speak English. And the teacher would call on me. And even though I would know the answer because it's a math problem, I cannot answer because I do not know how to communicate. I was a mute. And at that moment, I want you guys to picture this. You don't know the language. You feel already like an oddball. You're culturally shocked. And there's pretty girls around you. There's people laughing at you. And you're just standing there, sweating, scared, embarrassed. And you have to know that you have to come back the next day and go through the same thing over and over again. And to me, that was my every single day. I, I hated it. And because I hated it so much, I was not very liked. A lot of people picked on me. And they thought... Well, this guy, he's from another country. We can bully him. You know, he's an easy target. And what they didn't know is that I fought my entire life. You know, since I was five years old, I was fighting. Okay. And when I was being picked on, when I was bullied, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't even want to respond because the way I was programmed in my country is that if somebody looks at you wrong, somebody hits you, pushes you, you respond. Right. You respond right away. And that was my response. And my response got me in a lot of trouble. So I was suspended 13 times. And the wow. 14th time I get expelled, I broke somebody's nose and I get arrested. In Russia, you get in a fight, the teachers let you fight a little bit and they pull you aside, you go to your class. And here you get suspended, you get expelled, you get arrested, the cops show up. And I'm just like, I didn't do anything that bad. I was protecting myself. I was being bullied. That didn't matter. In this country, it doesn't matter who starts the fight. What matters is who gets damaged. And I didn't understand that. Next thing you know, the cop puts handcuffs on me. Puts me in a car, takes me away. I'm like, where am I going? Right? They bring me to the station. They book me, take my fingerprints, everything. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go home after this. My parents are working. My brother is working. Nobody knows where I am. My parents don't speak English. I go in, they literally send me to detention center in juvenile hall on Broad Street. It's a jail for underage kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't speak English that well. Okay. I came to this country for my freedom and here I am being locked up. My dad, hysterically freaking out, asking to see me. They couldn't see me. Three days later, I have to go to court. Yeah. My whole family standing there. Everybody's standing there. And the judge says, six months in juvenile hall. I'm like, this is just insane. Like, I thought I'm going home. I thought I'm maybe going to get, you know, slapped on my wrist and just, you know, don't do it again. Nope, six months juvenile. I was, if I felt like an oddball in, in my school, imagine how I felt in the detention center. Everybody rapping different gangs, different colors. I'm like, I don't know what most people are saying. Everybody wants to fight. I know I'm the type of guy to respond. So I had a very difficult time there. What made me change, what made me shut my mouth 
and really just suffer through this pain was when my dad came to see me. And he said, I sacrificed everything for you. I left my country. I left my friends. I left my culture. At the age of 40, I made a choice to give up my life to build yours. And this is where you're sitting. This is where you are. One thing I wanted you to do was to make me proud. And I am so disappointed. My dad left after he said that. I sat there and I wanted to cry. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was in a wrong place. And I knew that if I showed any weakness, then that would just give more people to, to make me an easy target. When I went back to my room, I was sitting there and I was crying, but there was no tears. My heart was shattered in pieces. And I promised myself, I said, I'm going to come out of here. I'm going to change. So what I did while being in, in juvenile hall, I just read a lot. I read a lot. I read a lot. English wasn't good. Dictionary, reading, dictionary, reading, just to stay busy. I played ping pong. I read. I made friends with guards. And six months passed. And when six months passed, I had an ankle bracelet. I still had to have an ankle bracelet for another six months. I had to go to school with the ankle bracelet. People were pointing at me. People were making fun of me. I said, it doesn't matter. I just need to stay focused on my goal, on my target. I had a chip on my shoulder. I promised that I'm going to keep my mind occupied. So I did wrestling in high school. I did soccer. I was offered multiple scholarships. But because of my record, because of my mistakes, my immigration process was put on hold. So I couldn't attend any college unless it was a community college. I couldn't get any scholarship because of my status. And I said, okay, I'm going to go play soccer for community college. I'm going to get noticed. Things are going to get better. What happened was my dad had a heart attack. And I'll never forget, Arthur couldn't leave the work because his boss said, I got tickets to go to Red Sox game. I get your dad's in the hospital, but I got my kids to take the Red Sox game. Arthur still left. Uh, went to the hospital. I was in my class when I got the call. I rushed to the hospital. And the only thing I could beg God is to not take away my dad. You know, my dad was working 80 hours a week, breaking his back just to put food on the table. And at 17 years old, I'm making a decision to say, what do I do to never, ever uh, waste my life again? And I promised God, I said, God, if you just give me an opportunity, if you bring my dad back, I promise you that I will not waste my life. I will be successful. I will make all my dreams come true. And I will make sure that my dad is taken care of. Luckily, you know, my dad had a surgery, passed the surgery, got better, you know, and he still had to go back to work, unfortunately. He still had to go back to work. But I had a mission. And that mission was... I will do whatever it takes to make sure that I will one day retire my dad. For the next seven years, I went into sales. I worked 15 hours a day for seven years, seven days a week. I would attend every training in New York, New Jersey, Virginia, you name it. I would travel. I would spend every single dollar to get better. And I, in seven years, you know, retired my dad. In seven years, I accomplished my goal. By the age of 28, I made my first million dollars. By the age of 30, I made dozens of million dollars. And for anybody that's listening to this, where you come from does not define you. It's where you're going and who you want to be. That's what matters. You know, I knew that I didn't come to this world with all the luxuries. My parents were not college graduates. My parents were not doctors, engineers, and lawyers. They didn't understand the financial world. But one thing my dad gave me was the heart of steel. And that thing was just continuously pushing me to not give up, continuously pushing me to be better. And when things were challenging, when things were tough, I just knew that I was tougher. And that's what allowed me to really achieve all my goals. Wow. That was an incredible journey. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So amazing. So I know for a lot of people, they they don't have to go through that pain. And I really, truly believe that your pain 
gives you your purpose in life and your mess is your message. And so what do you think is holding people back from achieving the success that you've created for yourself? I think a lot of people, they allow other people, circumstances, and things write their story rather than grabbing the pen and deciding what they want and write their own story. Mm-hmm. You know, I could easily allow everybody else to tell my story. You know, I was told your special needs, you're dyslexic, your GPA is 2.4, you're never going to amount to anything. My counselor, uh, Ms. Taylor, told me that, hey, you should just think about getting a job at a factory and really working hard and see if you can climb up on that company. You know, everybody, they counted me out. That was the story that everybody told for me. But that's not the story that I wanted to tell the world. So I grabbed the pen. I wrote down what I wanted and I created a plan and I worked extremely hard to make sure that those people that con me out never do that again. Yeah, I think that's that's so important that you don't let other people write that story for you and you don't yeah. have to do what they tell you. And so, you know, building that successful business over the seven years and becoming a multimillionaire, what do you think some of the skills that you had to attain that really helped propel you and really helped you cultivate this much success? What do you think those were? I think number one skill that everybody needs to obtain is emotional stability. You know, I think we make bad decisions when we're extremely emotional. It doesn't mean when you're just sad or angry or in pain, even when you're happy, when you everything is going right for you, you know, don't allow your highs to get too high. Don't allow your lows to get too low. You got to be able to know how to maintain yourself. And even things are going great. You don't want to be too loosey and make the decision because you say, oh, you know what? I feel good. Maybe it will happen. No, you got to really have calculated decisions, uh, especially if you're in business, especially if you're working with people. Right, you have to never overlook that. Um, recently, a couple, you know, a week ago actually, from two, last Thursday, my wife calls me and she's like hysterical, and I am in a business meeting. We're discussing a ten million dollar investment, and I'm sitting in the meeting and I see my wife calls me. She knows I'm in a meeting, so she wouldn't call me, right, if it wasn't important. And I mind you, I have people all around me, so I answered. And you can hear her scream. And I'm like, what happened? And she goes, Leo, Leonidas, he he fell. He, he ripped his whole face. He fell from the scooter. And you can tell, right? I mean, for a mother to see her son be, have blood all over, right? First reactions, you know, is he okay? And you can see me during the meeting keeping my emotions steady. And I said, not a problem. I am on my way. I excuse myself from the meeting. I jump in the car. I get home. My son is full of blood. My wife is trying to clean him. The ambulance is there. He doesn't want to go. His whole lip is open, uh, ripped. And I know that I have to be that strong person in my family. If I overreact, if I make it seem like it's really bad, maybe it is. But by me overreacting, making it being worse than you know, it needs to be, what do you think happens to my son? He thinks it's worse. He gets more hysterical. He gets more upset, right? So the first thing I look at my son, even though it was bad, I'm like, oh, Leo, you're fine. It's not bad. It's okay. It looks like you just fought Conor McGregor. Let's go. I'm going to go to the hospital with you. I'm going to go to the ambulance with you. What do you want to eat after that? My job, my role as a man, as a father, is to protect my children, is to not add more stress to them. It's not to add more frustration to them is to be able to say, I got it, right? When everybody going through something, they're looking for a hero. You never see a Superman, you never see Batman freaking out. No, they're always calculated. They always sit there and they know how to make the right decision because they know how to control their emotion. Yeah, that is that is very true. And I think what you've shared with us and our listeners um, about your past is really probably where you were able to learn that, right? You were, you came from a very difficult upbringing. You had this um, incredible and you know unique 
um, a journey, your immigration journey. And obviously that had a huge impact on you being able to overcome so many challenges. And that's where you would get all that emotional intelligence from. So that's amazing. Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, I, I think it also has to do a lot with the people that I surrounded myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like my older brother had to grow up very fast at a young age. Uh, you know, I was born inside a refugee camp. He got to the refugee camp. So you can only imagine what he saw, right? And when I talk to him, he'll share stories like he saw a man's head being cut off right in front of him, right? So him being five years old, six years old, seeing these things, right? I And I spent most of my childhood with my brother. Like a lot of people thought we were twins and I'm much you know, bigger than my brother. So a lot of people think that I'm his older brother than his younger brother. Uh, and they think like, oh, you guys twins? We're like, no, we're not twins at all. But we grew up extremely close together. So a lot of these things rub off on me from having the right people around me that also know how to maintain their emotional intelligence. Yeah, I think your relationship with Arthur is incredible. I've never seen brothers that close and that connected and want so much more for each other. And both of you are just so resilient and so powerful. And I think that's because you do have each other to lean on. And community and the people that you surround yourself with, with are everything. And so- Your story is just so amazing. And I want to switch over now to the business that you've built for yourself. I mean, Alex and I were there a few months ago. I was there yesterday. And the community and the culture that you built are second to none. I've never seen a company have that much energy and that much excitement. And it's so it's so, it's so amazing. You don't see that in corporate America at all. And so what are the tools and the skills that you had to cultivate within yourself to be able to inspire that in all of your team and all of the people that work for you? Yeah. Great question. You know, I don't think they get this excited for me, Samantha. I think it was all you. No, (laughs) definitely. But to be honest with you, you know, it would be inappropriate for me to say that I have built this company alone. I had an amazing team. And I think the number one thing that you need to to build a great community is people. It's people that are aligned with your mission. It's people to support the mission. You know, John C. Maxwell says, one is too small of a number to achieve greatness. You know, no matter how good looking I am, no matter how sweet talker I am, no matter how much experience I have, I cannot do it by myself. And I have an amazing team of individuals that come together to help us lay each brick to be able to build this community. You know, we all come up with ideas, marketing strategies, but most importantly, we're all visionaries. We see where this company is going. We see the lives uh, of people that are changing. And we it's like a drug to us. We want more of that. We, we, we thrive on the fact that somebody went from working at Taco Bell to coming to Axelid and their first year, they made $130,000. But they decided to put a down payment on the house their mom wanted to buy. And to us, the biggest asset that any company, anybody can have is the right people. You could have, you know, raw rock, the commodity, and, you know, you could have all the chance, you can have the energy, but if you don't have the right people, it will not last. Because, you know, one thing that makes me really proud, Alexa and Samantha, is that when I'm not here, nothing changes. When you walk into Axelid, you don't know who CEO is because everybody is that good. And everybody maintains that standard. Everybody maintains that, you know, elite version of themselves to inspire others to become more. So to me, the number one thing in business or building a company is find the right group of people are going to align with you on a big mission. And I completely agree. Your biggest asset is the people that you have and the people that you surround yourself with. So when you go into interviews and when you're looking for those right individuals to join your team, what is it that you look for? So, you know, the first thing we look for is, do you have a purpose? You know, why do you want to do this? Sales is not easy. Sales is extremely hard. 
right? Why do you want to leave your salary job? Why do you want to leave your hourly job where you don't have to perform? You don't have to feel uncomfortable. You don't have to face rejection. Why do you want to come to sales? And a lot of people do see our Instagram. They do see how we have fun, the travels, the trips, the bonuses. And they say, well, I saw how exciting and fun it is. And I say, you know what? My job here at Axelite is not to sell you a ticket to paradise. It's for me to sell you the ticket to hell. Because the only way to get to paradise is to go through hell. And they say, well, what do you mean by that? I said, you know, this is not easy. You're going to want to quit a hundred times in the next hundred days because you're going to face a lot of challenges. Tell me what's going to keep you here. What is your purpose? What is your action motivator? What is your why? When things get hard, when you don't feel like doing it, what's going to get you out of the bed? And a lot of people, you know, surprisingly do not have a purpose. Money is not the purpose. Okay. Money is the goal. What you want to do with the money is the purpose, right? And a lot of times people don't believe that they can actually achieve things because their entire life, everybody told them they're not going to amount to much. Exactly. That's why they settle for low paying jobs. That's why they exchange their hours for dollars. That's why they hang out with the people that don't serve them rather than destroy them. So therefore, we're looking for the person that knows that they want more out of life, that they have to have a purpose. That's number one. Number two, we're looking for people that have a commitment. In life, you're going to have to do two things, right? You're going to have to work very hard and you're going to have to get good at something. And a lot of people, they get good at something that doesn't serve them. They get good at wrong things, like playing video games. <laughs> they get good at maybe cooking, but they're not going to be a professional chef. They get good at watching Netflix. Those things are not good things for you to get good at. So to me, you have to decide and say, if I'm going to do this, am I going to be average, below average, good, great? Why would I want to do this? And anything I do, I want to be best at it. So we're looking for people to say, I'm willing to commit, I'm willing to work hard, and I'm willing to get good at it. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that we're looking for. But I would say main thing, right? It's the character. Are you naturally a good person? How did you treat, you know, a Medina, the person that sits in the front, my administrator? Did you say hello? Did you hold the door? Did you introduce yourself? Were you rude? Do you have professionalism? So how you do things matter, right? And I think the character of how you carry yourself, how you present yourself matters to us as well. Because if you're going to be part of Axelite, you're going to be our branding. You're going to be our walking billboard. And we don't want people to say, yeah, you know, this person is just so rude, so unprofessional. Well, where did it work? Axelite. Now it comes back to us. So that's why in here at Axelite, you know, we teach a lot of things. Financial literacy. We teach professionalism, meeting conducts, leadership, sales. So that way people could get better. Yeah, you definitely have a standard of excellence. And I think that's so important to uphold and make sure that every single employee that you have displays all of those qualities that you just mentioned. And so you talked a lot about hiring people with a purpose and a why. We really want to know what is your why that keeps you going throughout every single day, waking up so early and putting in so many hours. Love it. So my why has changed throughout the years. When I was 17, my wife was to, for my dad to never work another day at his job. When I was 24, you know, my wife was pregnant with our first child. And I said, I don't want my, my kid to be raised in daycare with strangers. I need to retire my wife. So then I retired my wife, right? Then I started to have my son and I said, wow, in, in my mind, this is something that I want to pass to somebody. I want to be able to build wealth to be able to have somebody take over the throne. Then I have my other daughter. And I said, how do I make sure these three kids are able to follow their dreams? If my daughter wants to be, you know, a professional dancer, if she wants, if my son wants to be a UFC fighter, if my daughter wants to be an artist, 
They don't have to worry. They can follow fully their dreams and their passions. Today, my why is to help a thousand people make six figures. Because there's nothing more important to me today is when I leave this world for my kids to know that my dad created this impact. He changed the world for the better. He has helped a thousand people not only make money, but become better human beings. Understand love, understand leadership, understand loyalty, understand, you know, partnership, you know, and just change their trajectory of life, you know, completely get away from gener the generational curses of being poor. Mm -hmm. That's my why today is to help a thousand people. I really like what you just said, and I never thought about it that way that your why can actually change through different life stages, right? So we don't all have the same goals and ambitions uh, and we change, we grow up, we accomplish some of those goals. And I never thought about it in that way. So I really like what you just shared, how your you. why was a lot different at 17 than it is today. And as we accomplish so many things, you, you then try to give back. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I think a lot of people confuse why with monetary things. Well, my why is to live in a big home. Oh, that's a goal, mm -hmm. right? When it comes down to your purpose, it's not focused on your paycheck. Mm -hmm. It is focused on the impact that you leave behind. The impact that I was able to leave behind is the fact that my dad never had to go back to work. The impact that I was able to leave behind is the fact that my kids didn't have to grow up with a stranger. The impact that I was able to leave behind is be able to set my children to be good for the rest of their life. You know, it's being able to help them accomplish their dreams. So there's a lot of things in the world that are not explained. And I know a lot of people listen to a lot of Instagram and TikTok and people say, you have to have a why, but they don't explain how why has to be connected to you. It's not monetary. It's not temporary. It's something that you do that will last forever. It's that legacy that you want to leave behind. And I think that was so beautifully spoken how you said that. And um, I know from doing the podcast interview, interview with you, you talked a lot about how your wife was your rock and the person that made you believe in yourself. So can you share with our listeners what that looked like and how she helped you excel to where you want to be? Because I think choosing the right person is everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when you're young, right, you really don't know what you're looking for in a woman, right? A lot of times when you're young, you're looking for physical attraction and you're like, okay, I don't know what kind of a woman I want to be with. I'm just looking for temporary pleasure, you know? And fortunately, I was able to find somebody who was both beautiful on outside and inside. Somebody who had an amazing, amazing heart. You know, I was broke as a joke at 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And my wife came to my life when I was in my worst position. I ended up selling my Mitsubishi Eclipse to actually go to the training in Mexico. So I had no car. I had no money. I was working as a gyro boy, making sandwiches while building my business. And she did not see me for who I was then. She saw me for who I can become. She listened to my dreams. She listened to my goals. And she believed in me. That was the first person that I believe, besides my brother, that truly believed in my abilities to become more, to become great. And I always say this, no matter what happens, people fall out of love, people leave each other. This person is 100% responsible for majority of my success. Because if she didn't believe in me, if she wasn't that rock for me, maybe I would have quit. Maybe I would have given up. Maybe I would have settled. But she wanted more out of me and she pushed me to become more every single day. And I remember, you know, I couldn't afford two tacos. I'm going to share this personal story with you guys because I think that was probably my worst embarrassing moment you know i was working different side jobs and i was building my business and me and my wife was living at her mom's basement we're renting out that basement we're paying i think it was 500 dollars a month and mind you basement had no windows 
you know, it was literally small room that we just would come in and sleep and go back to doing what we need to be doing. And that night she said, oh, I'm feeling a little hungry. She loved, loved Taco Bell. I said, let's go get Taco Bell. We're, you know, broke. That's all we could afford. And I give my card. She ordered two tacos, right? One for me, one for her. And I said, okay, I'm not even feeling hungry, but whatever. I gave the card to the cashier register. He swipes it. It declines. I said, no, no, no. Do it again. Swipes. It declines. I log in on my phone to Bank of America to see. And I had an overdraft fee, negative $35. Something charged me, right, where my, my, my bank account went negative. And I am embarrassed. Okay, My wife is right there. The cashier is looking at me. It's like the whole time just slow down and I have to make a decision. And I feel so terrible about this decision. I'm like, listen, I'm looking at my bank account. I have the money. And I did this rush hour thing. Have you guys seen rush hour? When he shows that he's FBI and he's not. He just do it quick. right? And I was like, look, there's money there. And I put it back. Right? And I was so embarrassed. The guy's like, don't worry. Our, our system wasn't working. It's only $5. Don't worry. I got you. Wow. And I took those tacos and I gave it to my wife. And I felt dead. I didn't eat. I said, I'm not hungry. I lost my appetite. I was not hungry at all. And I was driving. And I'm just like, wow. I am a fucking loser. Excuse my French. I don't know if I can swear or not. No, but <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wow, I am a loser. I didn't sleep that night. I said, next morning, I looked her in the eyes and I said, I promise you, every six months, our lives are going to get better. Every six months, our lives are going to get better. And every six months, our lives got better. You know, we went from living in the basement to living in a downtown penthouse. We went from living there to living in multi-bedroom apartment. You know, we had no car, taking bus to now having four or five cars. You know, again, our lives got better. And they got better because she believed in me. And she never allowed me to give up on myself. Wow. That's so amazing. And I feel like you have to go through that pain to really have gratitude for where you are now. So I'm I'm sure that moment in time really stuck with you and it propelled you to, you know, all of the success that you have now. So I think that's such a beautiful story. And I love that you and your wife have been together for over a decade. I think that's so important. And so for people who are struggling in their relationships right now, what advice would you have to keep the spark going and to, you know, keep you moving on and to just keep experiencing happiness with her? Yeah. Um, Amazing question. I think you have to respect each other and respect each other's goals, right? For example, there are certain areas of my life which me and my wife share our life together that I don't make decisions. She's an expert. She makes decisions. Like our house, whatever she says goes. She's the boss. She's the queen of the empire. When it comes down to maybe business decisions, right? Fully, I'm a boss. I make the decisions. She never made me sacrifice my dreams to make her happy. She knew that she was responsible to make herself happy. And she knew that she was responsible as a woman to support me in my dreams. And I realized that my job is to support her and her dreams. So when she wanted to be able to move to a specific town and buy a specific home, I didn't even look at the house we bought. She went to open house by herself. And she said, I want that house. Done. I didn't care where I lived. I came from a refugee camp, 350 square foot room. Moving into a 5,000 square foot home, I could care less. As long as I could find a corner, I'm fine. She made that decision. I didn't even see the house. And it's being able to respect your partner to make the decision and trust them to make the right decision. Now, sometimes they're going to make the wrong one. I made wrong decisions. She made wrong decisions. 
And it's not about using that information against them. It's about learning from that experience to help each other grow, to help each other get better. Knowing that intention that the, your partner made a decision with was never to hurt you. It was never to make problems or, you know, make things difficult. They just made a wrong decision. And that decision has a consequence. And both of you have to pay for that consequence together. You know, one of the things that really helped my relationship with my wife is being able to also communicate with her. Not being afraid to tell her how I feel. What I don't like. What I do like. What doesn't she like about me? What do I need to change? Right? For a lot of people make this mistake. They they're married. I've been with my wife for eleven years now. Okay. And at one point, I started to not care about how I look. I started to eat whatever I eat, stay up late, drink a lot of energy drinks, gain a lot of weight. And then people made comments. And the comments were, well, you're married. Why would you care? And I said, hold on. I should care. Because I should do my best to look my best for my wife. I still have a responsibility. We go places together. I want to make sure that when my wife walks into a place with me, she says, that's my husband. He's freaking sexy. <laughs> right? yeah. I don't want to say, uh, is that your husband? No. Uh, ah, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Right? So I think being able to have the responsibility to make your partner look good by making sure that you uphold the standard is very important. And not giving up the fact that Oh, you know what? Just because we we tolerate each other, we don't need to we, we we don't need to you know uphold the standards. I know people that live together, right? They're married, but they don't sleep in the same bedroom. And to me, that's not a relationship. You know, you want to be able to make time to go on a date. You want to. We have three kids. It's very hard to find a babysitter to watch three kids. Yeah. Right. Thankfully, we have our parents who volunteer and who want to be there for us. And we run multiple businesses and we do a lot of things. We still find time to go on a date. We still find time to do things. Like I have a trip coming up to be in a studio to do, you know, a show in, in Fort Lauderdale. And I said, you know what? I'm going by myself. I don't want to go by myself. I'm going to take my wife. I'm going to take all my kids. They're coming with me. And that's the beauty of being financially good. That you can afford to do things with the people you love. If I was broke, if I didn't have the money, if I didn't have the resources, I have to not spend time with my family. So find ways to be together as much as you can. Find ways to communicate as much as you can. Trust each other. And most importantly, don't take your partner for granted. That's the most important thing. Wow. Yeah, I would agree with all those. And you've been in such in a long-term relationship. And so you've obviously grew together and it's so great to be able to find the person that's going to support you. And that's going to be that rock for you. Who's going to uh, keep you accountable, right. And, and propel you and push you forward as well. So that's all amazing things. Right. And, and I don't want to make it seem like my wife and I don't argue or we don't have disagreements or we don't fight, we absolutely fight. We absolutely argue. We absolutely have disagreements. You know what? At the end of the day, we know that we respect each other. We love each other. And because of a disagreement, disagreement solely means that you have miscommunicated. Okay. And if you could just come back to the room, to the table, and have that conversation, and remove your ego and say, where did I go wrong? Mm -hmm. What did I do to upset you? And instead of putting your ego first, put your heart first, mm -hmm. anything and everything can be fixed. I agree with that. And I know from a life coaching session with Jay Shetty, he talks a lot about couples fighting each other, but yeah. 
couples should come together to fight the problem together rather than each other. And I thought that was so profound when you really, you know, decide to make that decision to work together to fight whatever you're going through and whatever challenge you may be facing together. So I think that's so important. And so what's next for you? You've built up a multi-million dollar business. Your company is absolutely incredible. So what is what does your future look like now? What's your vision? You, you know, I have many roles, you know, CEO, investor, founder. But the one role, one title that I admire the most is being a father. You know, to me, setting a good example for my children in a business world, in my home, in my community is extremely important to me. And I want my kids to live their life of purpose. I want my kids to be able to lead. I want my kids to be able to be in charge, never point a finger. So in today's economy, everything that we're going through, we need to have better opportunities. We need to have better communities. We need to have stronger people, leading people. And my next goal, my next vision is to continue to build Axley, continue to diversify our industries, create more opportunities, better economy, and show people that, you know what? One man or one woman may be too small of a number to achieve greatness, but if one man or woman decides to do so, they can attract other men and women to help them do so. And I want to be that reasoning for people to come together. I want people to believe that you can go from average to elite. I want people to believe that you are more than enough and your circumstances and conditions do not define you. You get to write your story. Don't pass that pen to nobody. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, yes. that was incredible. Thank you. So amazing. So for our listeners, where can they find you? Your Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. We got Instagram page, Young Hustler VX3, Axelite page on Instagram, uh, axelite.com. 936 Salisdean Highway, come visit, say hello, you know, whatever we can do, whenever we can support you. If you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be able to start your own business, if you just want to be able to, you know, find your purpose and you need assistance, we're here to support you in any way, shape or form. Thank you so much for being on the show. Your story is amazing and you've inspired so many people. I know you inspire both of us to keep going. Keep, you know, living in our divine purpose and making a huge, profound impact on the world. So thank you so much for all that you're doing and all the lives you're changing. It's really so commendable. Thank you. And thank you. You guys are powerful. You know, you guys are amazing women who are leading by example. And I love, love what you guys are doing. Again, so many women from our company and even men spoke so well about you guys. And it's extremely important that we continue to Find women like you who make the difference. Thank you I appreciate so much. That. that was very sweet. Yeah. So Thank nice. you. And to all our listeners, we're sending you so much love and light. Thank you.